Good evening. I think we're going to go ahead and get started. Welcome to Legal Issues Concerning Animal Programs in Prisons and Jails. Can everybody hear me okay? Thank you. I'm Sejal Sangvi from the Animal Law Committee. Welcome. I'd like to start by thanking our fantastic panelists for joining us this evening. In order from right to left, Dr. Kimberly Spaniol, Ms. Liz Keller, Mr. Gilbert Molina III, Ms. Liz, Ms. Gloria Gilbert-Stoga, and not to forget our service dogs, Justice and PK. Um, I'll be introducing the panelists just a mo in just a moment further. Uh, a couple other words of thanks. Thanks to um, my colleagues on the Animal Law Committee, Dana Capone and Frederica Miller, for their help planning this panel and conceiving of the topic with, and working with me, and to Chris Walk, chair of the Animal Law Committee, who oversees all, all of our programming. Also, we're grateful to the Corrections and Community Reentry Committee for co-sponsoring this program with us. This topic is at the intersection of animal advocacy and criminal justice and re rehabilitation-based prison reform. Developing synergies between animal advocacy and prisoners' rights, among other populations, is a powerful tool for intersectional social justice. Prison-based animal training programs have been gaining traction in recent years and show promise as rehabilitative vocational skill training and therapeutic tools for incarcerated individuals. In the animal advocacy realm, some of the benefits include humane education, reinforcement of the human-animal bond, and in some cases, second chances for rescue dogs. And as some of our panelists will discuss, these types of animal programs in prisons often provide other cascading social benefits. Prison-based animal training programs are just one example of how programming that benefits humans and animals often go hand in hand. A word about the format for tonight's program. Each, each panelist will present individually and then we'll open it up for audience Q&A. Our first presenter will be Dr. Kim Spaniol, then we'll have Ms. Liz Keller, then Gloria Gilbert-Stoga, and then um, Mr. Gilbert Molina. Next, I'd like to introduce the panelists in more detail by reading their bios. First, Liz Keller. Liz Keller is the founder of Rescue Dogs, Rescue Soldiers, and Glen Wild Animal Rescue. She was blessed with a puppy named Miracle, who inspired her to dedicate her life to improving the lives of animals, of homeless and abused companion animals. She has developed various innovative programs designed to help both animals and people. Rescue Dogs, Rescue Soldiers trains rescue dogs as service dogs for veterans injured during service in Iraq and Afghanistan. The organization also provides pet therapy programs. Rescue Dogs Rescue Soldiers helps three populations, injured Iraq and Afghanistan veterans, rescue dogs, and troubled teens in juvenile detention. As part of community outreach, Liz has set up several programs in New York State correctional facilities, Youth Leadership Academy, Goshen Secure, Highland Residential, and Rikers Island. Next, Gloria Gilbert-Stoga. Gloria Gilbert-Stoga is founder and president of Puppies Behind Bars. She started the organization in 1997 when she began teaching a group of inmates at Bedford Hills Correctional Facility, New York's only maximum security prison for women, to raise service dogs. 
Puppies Behind Bars trains prison inmates to raise service dogs for wounded war veterans and first responders, as well as law enforcement. Puppies Behind Bars has now raised more than 1,200 dogs and works in six prisons in New York and New Jersey. Prior to starting Puppies Behind Bars, she served as a member of New York City Mayor Rudy Giuliani's Youth Empowerment Commission, whose mission was to secure private sector employment for New York City low-income youth. Ms. Doga's prior experience also includes serving as executive director of the New York Metropolitan Committee for UNICEF, where she oversaw all educational fundraising and community outreach initiatives in New York, New Jersey, and Connecticut, as well as founder and director of the privatization project at the Carnegie Council on Ethics and International Affairs. She received her BS in education from Virginia Commonwealth University and lives in New York City with her husband and three laboratory retrievers. Um, Mr. Gilbert Molina. Mr. Molina served as a puppy raiser for Puppies Behind Bars for four years. He started in the Puppies Behind Bars program in February 2006 during his incarceration at Otisville CF. Mr. Molina raised four dogs, Marjorie, Devin, Faith, and Prophet, until his release in 2010. He currently teaches Puppy Behind Bars classes in Fishkill and Downstate Correctional Facilities. Finally, Kimberly Spaniel. Dr. Kimberly Spaniol is a licensed and doctoral level board certified behavioral, behavior analyst, licensed mental health counselor, and certified humane educator. She holds certifications in animals and human health, animal assisted interventions, and teaching mindfulness to youth. She has served as an educator, researcher, consultant, and clinician. Dr. Espanol is currently an assistant professor at Iona College, where she teaches courses in species justice and environmental justice, among others. Her clinical practice includes assisting clients with a variety of behavioral, developmental, and mental health issues. She has worked in private practice, educational, and correctional settings for more than 25 years. Her canine therapy partner, Ella, creates miracles in human health and happiness regularly. Dr. Espanol's areas of expertise include behavior modification, social emotional learning, humane education, intersectionality and social justice, ethical animal assisted therapy, the human animal bond, animals and criminal justice, animal protection and environmental criminology, among others. Her current research projects include evaluating animal assisted therapy programs with incarcerated youth, measuring the effectiveness of service and experiential learning as tools for behavioral and social change, and examining the impact of human-animal interactions on human mental health and patterns of violence. So as I mentioned before, we'll start the program um, with a presentation by Dr. Kim Spaniol, and then move along. And thank you all for your attendance. Let's make sure... This is working, okay. Um, so first of all, I'm really happy to be here. Thank you so much for inviting me. This is one of my favorite topics, anything that can help animals and make that connection, I'm always you know, really happy to talk about. And also to be on the panel with all of these other wonderful people doing this amazing work that really needs to be done. So I'm going to speak a little bit, I'm going to talk from my PowerPoint. My PowerPoint's way too long. I'm going to go through, and I know that, but I, I thought I would include everything because then you can have access to it, and then you can ask me about things and refer to it later. So I'll sort of give a brief overview, and, you know, 
understanding that I'm kind of, I would love to have an hour to talk to you, but I don't, right? Because I'm really passionate about this topic, and maybe some of you are out there too. Uh, so the role that I have is really to evaluate, I feel like I'm too close to this, to evaluate these programs because I want them to get more funding. We know anecdotally, we know that these programs are really effective and they're in every you know, state, but we need more research. We need more empirical research so that we can attract funding and we can have programs that can thrive and decision makers who want to put you know, the, the effort and the, and the money that's needed. So I don't know about anybody here, but I always say when I'm talking about this, you know, we evaluated this program on a volunteer basis because we really believe in it and we want to see it expand and grow, but we didn't, you know, we didn't have any funding for it. The program didn't have any funding. The burden was going on the rescue groups to provide everything, and that's not a sustainable model, particularly when it's helping so many people, right? Um, you know, we were talking, Liz and I were talking briefly and, you know, it's such a win-win, right? We have, you know, all these tax dollars that are going to euthanize all of these healthy, adoptable animals. We have inmates, you know, that are essentially in a great foster situation for all these dogs. You know, they can help them, they can train them, then it helps them too, right? They can learn about behavior modification and positive reinforcement and learning. We're all animals, right? Humans are animals, dogs are animals. We all learn the same way. So what we try to do is say, okay, let's start by trying to do some more empirical research so that we can have evidence to attract funding and see also best practices, right? Because right now we know a lot of things are working, but we don't know exactly what's working, what's optimal. We have no idea, right? So from a research perspective, that's what I'm talking to you about today. Um, okay, so first of all, the title of the talk. I'm just talking, I always look at any kind of animal-assisted interventions and say how can we enhance them to just create more win-wins and get more support for them, whether it's in, in, you know, in correctional institutions, in colleges. Every college has these programs where they bring dogs in to de-stress the students around final exam times, but it's all very person-centered, right? So the people don't get a chance to give back Right? What about reciprocal altruism? What about empowerment from feeling good and, and being able to say, oh, this is something you can help them too. Animals need help too, right? And that's good for humans, it's good for animals, it's good for everybody involved. So what I work from is a model, um, in this case, called humane pedagogy. Is anybody familiar with humane education, humane pedagogy? Some of you might be, right? So, it's, so this is something that we said, okay, let's see how we can apply these principles to this program at Rikers, at Rikers Rovers program. Liz also worked in Rikers, and it's hysterical because I was trying to meet her for so long, and nobody ever connected us, and I said, now we meet. <laughs> Finally, now we meet. So, okay, just a little bit about humane education and humane pedagogy. Again, this is all going to be slides that you can access if you want to. Um, Basically, you're looking at how different things impact human rights, animal protection, and environmental stewardship. So whatever the issue is, you can always look at it from those three lenses. How does that work together? And essentially, what you're looking at is how all stakeholders are impacted, right? So, you know, people benefit from certain practices and suffer, and so do animals, and so does the environment. So it's doing an analysis of what is the true price of whatever the practice is. What is the true price of euthanizing, you know, millions of adoptable pets, right? How does that impact humans? How does that impact animals? How does it impact the environment? Because it does. Um, you know, whatever, it, whatever the practice is. And then we challenge learners to think, how can we 
replace harmful behavior with something that causes less harm and more positive outcomes, right? How, what creates less harm and more good for all involved? And what systems do we have to transform in order to do that, right? Because we're all individuals operating in these systems where we don't have so much choice. So it's really kind of shedding a light on that. So we're using that. The other thing we did was we worked with a program called Mudagrees, which is based with North Shore Animal League. And we said, these are teens. Let's use the teen program. They have a high school curriculum to teach social-emotional learning. And let's apply that, and let's see. The dream was to have a comparison group where some kids would have like a, a dog training program and some kids would have the enhanced program with the, these lessons. Um, but that was asking a lot, which you'll see. We had a lot of barriers when we were working with Rikers. There was a lot of difficulty, which I'll talk about. So that was the basic premise, right? How can we make sure that you know the best we have best practices in these programs, and how can we you know inform ourselves to make them better and better? We know how they're great. So one of the things we look at and we, we work with the youth with is how do we see different kinds of harm? You know, here we are at the New York Bar Association. I mean, typically when a behavior is codified into law, it's because it should be theoretically because it is harmful, right? But we all know there's lots of harmful behaviors that happen all the time and are, they're perfectly legal, right? So we start looking at these things. And again, always looking at human-animal environment, right? We exist in an interconnected you know, world. And one of the things that we ask the youth to do is to examine how uh, their values, what are their values, what's important to them, and how is it expressed in their choices and in their behavior, right? So this is something that's very helpful you know, for reflection and to sort of think about well, what are my beliefs, right? Like I always say, my values are, you know, I have a lot of different values that are important to me, but I value peace and justice and freedom, and I behave accordingly. I don't do things that I think are harming, you know, other people, animals, or the environment in that way. So there's a lot of videos that I have that I put on here just if you want to watch on your own, because it's some examples of what we show, but I don't have time to show them tonight. So basically it's looking at an interconnected model of how do we operate in the world. Little less... Ego, right, with people on top and everybody else on the bottom in this sort of triangle formation and a little more eco. How do we all work together? How do we exist in ecosystems together, right? Okay, so the goal to have, you know, less isms, right, whatever that ism is, you know, racism, sexism, right, from a social justice perspective, how can we create more good, less harm? So this is how we kind of you know, presented it. And we look at interrelated harms, okay? And there's lots of ways we can do that. There's a million examples we can use and we do use when we work with youth, okay? So this is just the taste of it. But anything that they're passionate about, we can say, okay, let's use this model and, and, and examine it. We basically teach that all oppression is connected, and we're really careful to not indoctrinate. We want to educate. We're going to give you information based on facts and research. We're going to teach you how to be critical thinkers and gather your own information, and then you can make your own evaluations. Okay? Um, so we did this with this case study in corrections. We said, um, I, was, I was contacted by the assistant deputy commissioner at the time. She knew that these programs were effective. She wanted to have some kind of evaluation of them, which was great. And we said, yeah, sure, we'll help any way we can. Okay, so that's actually Rocky, who you probably yep. know. Yep. He's the first he dog. North Shore, I think. Or, no, he was from ACC. He was from ACC. Yep. So ACC, Animal Care Centers, which a lot of you I know are familiar with, had first provided uh, the dogs for the program. 
they stopped. And when they stopped, North Shore Animal League stepped in. But you were already we there. Were there. Yep. <laughs> but we never got to meet. One of the things that we say is, okay, this intersectionality, this interconnection of oppressions, right? How do we connect harms? And it's not lost on the inmates, you know, that they're being warehoused and so are these animals. So there's this sort of like immediate connection there, right? Um, and they talk about that. You know, these kind of like, well, we're throwaways, right? We're warehoused. This is not lost on them. And these are teenagers and they brought these things up. So we looked at... Um, different programs all around the country, like I said, pretty much, every, I mean, it's global too, right? It's not just in the United States. Globally, we, there's a lot of programs, animal-assisted intervention programs in, in uh, correctional settings. This is just a program participant from Project Second Chance, but you're going to hear a lot, and I'm not, so I'm going to leave that stuff out because you're going to hear from these amazing presenters that are going to talk about those personal stories. But I think everyone can agree that knows these programs and anecdotally, when you see the impact of them, you know that they're effective and you know that they're powerful. So we just wanted to prove that pretty much, right? Um, just a little background. Um, these DTPs, essentially dog training programs, right? Um, might, other people might have other information. From what I know, it started in uh, Washington State in 1981. Like I said, it's all over. And basically, it's taking this behavior modification approach, right? You're teaching the, in, you know, the people how to teach the dogs through positive reinforcement. And then we learn about how our behaviors change and how we can shape behavior and all of that stuff. And it's great, right? So in the Rikers Rovers program, um, particularly the inmates were caring for the dogs in teams. So there was a lot of teamwork involved. They had to have a schedule. They had to get up early. They had to walk the dog. They had to feed the dog, right? So they had a lot of communication that had to happen. Um, and of course, there's a lot of benefits, which I'm sure we'll hear about, I know we will, right, in terms of what the um, incarcerated youth were getting, right? They were gaining skills, including job skills that they can use later, um, definitely improvements of behavior. I mean, it was the criteria of the program, you know, that they had to, which brings up other issues because a lot of the inmates were then being kind of terrorized by other inmates who were trying to get them kicked out of the program. And they would say to us, you know, we'd say, well, what do you need? What else do you need from the program? And they'd say, can you teach me how to manage my anger? Because I don't want to get kicked out of the program, but they're, I'm being, in, you know, they're instigating, right? So there's so many layers of things that happen. And it's an interesting thing I would love to talk more about, but, you know, we'll give a brief overview. Um, but the evaluations of these programs have li very limited validity, right? Um, there's mostly anecdotal data which is great, but we need more if we want to get funding for programs like this. And it's difficult to generalize across programs because all the programs are a, a little bit different, right? So from a research perspective, we wanted to get as much information as we could. This is just a little bit about the Mudigrees curriculum, so you can look at that um, to find out a little bit more about their program. But it's a social-emotional learning program involving shelter animals. Um, I'm not going to talk too much about the target population profile because I think a lot of you, you'll hear a lot, but these were uh, incarcerated youth at Rikers Island. Um, I feel like because I'm at the Bar Association, a lot of you know this, so, but I'll say it anyway. Um, you know, it's the city's main jail complex, one of the largest correctional facilities in the world, and um, nearly 50%... Uh, I'll just read this. More than 80% of the 4,000 adolescents admitted to Rikers Island each year are also released to the community. And without effective intervention, nearly 50% will be back in jail within one year. For every year that someone is incarcerated, there's a 4% increase in risk that they'll be incarcerated again. So every year that 
that increases, okay? Um, the clinical rationale, um, many young people, regardless of race, you know, socioeconomic status, gender, they typically have an inherent connection with animals. We kind of lose that as we age for different reasons. Um, not everybody does, clearly, right? I think people in this room probably didn't. Um, but youth identify with animals because animals and youth are so vulnerable to the uh, either cruelty or kindness of adults, right? So um, they have a dependent power relationship with adults, and that's something that's an immediate connection. They can both be the observers or targets of abuse. They can be used as pawns in abusive situations, and they can also become the aggressors and perpetrators of abuse. Um, and that complicated relationship also, even though it creates a lot of challenges, it is also the reason why AI can be so powerful. Okay, um, when we talk about general program goals and solutions, reducing violence, recidivism, enhancing public safety, saving public dollars spent to incarcerate people. Um, and there's a lot of social emotional learning benefits that come out of these programs and you know we'll hear more about cultivating empathy and compassion, perspective taking skills, building self-esteem, social emotional skills, right? Um, job training, um, learning about social responsibility. There's a little cool video there that you can watch if you want called Hearts Aligned, and it shows, um, some of you might have seen it, how human heartbeats and their canine companion heartbeats align in different situations, and when they're, when they're together, they calm down. It's a nice video. Correctional staff definitely benefit, too. So many of the COs were coming over to the house where we were because they wanted to pet the dog, and they, a lot of them ended up adopting the dogs. And we talked about this. The best was when we had the, the inmates See, I want to call them students because to me that's what they're, but this, you know, the student inmates, they were the ones that picked the person who would adopt the dog. They would have a role in that. So they'd be looking at the COs, right, and they'd be looking at their applications and saying, well, yeah, they have a good job. You know, they can afford to take them for vet care, like, you know, but they got to do the evaluation, which was pretty interesting. Obviously, um, the animals need help, okay? They need behavioral training to promote adoption. This is a situation where we can have all this temporary foster care, right, built right in. And we need to increase the awareness and the plight of homeless animals in our city. Um, so why dogs? Well, there could be other animals, and there's other animal-assisted interventions too, but dogs um, have been socialized around humans for a millennia, right? Like, <laughs> look, we started with the wolf, and now we have, like, little pugs that we dress up in funny hats or whatever, but they're still, like, that's their background, that's the origin. And, you know, they, they, we've been together for a long time, dogs and humans. They're really good at reading social cues, and, and, and they're excellent at teaching that, right? So it's a really good way to teach, really paying attention to nuanced social cues and expectations because dogs really pay attention to humans, right? They want to know what we're thinking, what we're doing. They anticipate everything we do, and it's a good way to teach it. And we need so many of them, so many of them. Um, the figure I have here is about one and a half million shelter animals are euthanized every year in the U.S. alone. And, you know, it can be expanded to other species too, but youth feel very heroic and empowered. I mean, who's less powerful than an incarcerated youth, you know? I mean, they get a chance to feel like heroes. So the anecdotal research shows a lot of promising results. Um, and building the human-animal bond solves a lot of social problems at the same time. Um, also, it addresses issues around link violence, which for those of you, I don't know if you've heard of link violence, but it's looking at the relationship between domestic violence, 
uh, child abuse, elder abuse, and um, animal abuse. Okay, so we are very um, mindful of that. We have a lot of people who have been maybe forced to hurt their own dogs, you know, have a, had a lot of abusive situations. It brings up a lot of stuff. So you really have to know what to expect because it, it really does trigger a lot of things, especially for the youth. Even things you wouldn't think of. I mean, it's, it might sound funny, but, you know, even the fact that animals, they're their genitalia is exposed. And, you know, some of the kids have been sexually abused, and it does bring up stuff, and they'll talk about it. But you just have to be prepared, you know, for all this stuff that might come up, right? Like all this trauma that might come up. Um, yeah. Well, also, of course, we know that dogs, and I'm sure you all know this, right, um, reduce our, our blood pressure, make us feel calmer, right? Like, so they're so, like, they're so awesome. Okay. <laughs> um, so basically, it really creates these win-wins. You guys might know this movie. I'm sure everybody up here does, but Dogs on the Inside is a great movie that talks about some programs, and it's a nice little trailer if you want to get an idea about you know some of these programs, but you'll get a great idea today. And the other thing is, um, I just wanted to give you an example of how we talk about this and how we teach it to the youth, right? So you know, how do we help all these populations? How do we help at-risk youth? How do we help companion animals that need our help, that are being, you know, losing an opportunity for life. Um, you know, adopt from programs like Rikers Rovers. The story and the narrative, right, really helps the dogs get adopted. I think everybody will agree with that because there's so many dogs, but that's sort of something that makes them stand out. Also the behavioral training. Um, and we teach the youth about activism and social justice issues, okay? We need to, you know, have have policy, public policy, reflect, you know, that what we know works, okay? And we know that doesn't happen all the time, but I'm still very Pollyannish about that, and I won't give up. I'll keep trying. Uh, but we want to teach them, how can you support systems that align with your values, okay? And that's the question. How can you find out when so maybe there's a system you don't know? Because a lot of these systems of violence are hidden. So i just like to give this example. Um, you know, I'm not, again, not in a judgmental way, but just that this is what's happening. You know, we know here, right, a lot of animal, animal cruelty laws, animals are property under the law, right? So, you know, an ag and market law is not in the penal code. Why are they so weak? Well, a lot of it has to do with the meat and dairy industry, okay, the whole slippery slope argument. You're going to tell me how to treat my pig, and you're going to you're going to codify that behavior. Then you know, or my dog, excuse me. The next thing you're going to tell me how to treat my pig, or my cow, or my chicken, right? So the animal agriculture industry ab definitely, absolutely does not support any laws protecting any animal. So I say, okay, well, causes human harm, environmental harm, obviously harm against animals. You know, what other systems and industries do we support, either knowingly or unknowingly, that impact? animals that might not be aligned with our values. Just how do we know? We have to research it. Right? So it's this whole lens of how do we expand compassion for others, but also self. Self is the hardest thing. Whenever I ask them, what did you do nice for yourself today? Oh, I don't know. I drank water. You know, whatever, right? Like that's for all of you, think about it, right? What did you do nice for yourself today? I keep backing up because of the feedback. So the, we know a lot from the science of compassion. Compassion is not limited. There's not a compassion bandwidth. Right? It's like Gandhi said, compassion is a muscle that gets stronger with use. Well, it's true. We know this from research, and it enables us to live more cooperatively. Um, it teaches, we can teach how to regulate emotions. 
Um, staying, strategies for staying with emotions instead of avoiding them, increasing the sense that helping will make a difference, right? Giving opportunities, streamlining them. This is a way to streamline those opportunities? Okay. And different mind training techniques, mindfulness. Okay, so we talk about how, you know, the world will change if we do. A lot of them don't have any hope, but we make up the policies in the world, right? And we can create a just and sustainable and equitable, equitable world for everyone. So I asked to tell me when five minutes was over. So for the Rikers Rovers program specifically, we wanted to do pre and post test comparisons of their social emotional health. And we implemented this enhanced dog training program. Um, we used a strongly validated instrument. It was a social emotional health survey by Furlong, and it measures these key constructs, belief in self and others, engaged living, and critical variables within those constructs like empathy, gratitude, persistence, optimism, self-awareness, right? These are skills we want to build. Um, <laughs> so um, we know, okay, so it definitely there were positive effects. Reduced inmate and correctional officer stress and increased inmate ability to stay and manage emotions and motivation to stay in the program. Um, I gave an example of that. Inmates felt more positive about their environment and their future and increased dog adoptability. So we had strong anecdotal data again, but we had a lot of logistical problems, and this is something that we need to deal with. And maybe we can all talk here so if we can offer our services to like get more attention for these wonderful programs. We only had 21 uh, people who ended up qualifying for, um, the, for the, the research protocol. The problem is also selection bias. You can't randomize. We wanted to use a wait list because they had certain inmates, right, that they selected for the program based on the behavior. And that's also to keep the animals safe too, right? So, you know, there's a lot of reasons for that. So we wanted to use the wait listed comparison group. Well, they promised us that. Never happened. That was another thing. All these communication barriers. Difficulty obtaining data. Total lack of communication. Uh, participants started the program without clean pretest. We said, just let us give a pretest before they start and a post-test when they finish. That didn't happen all the time. Um, at the end of the day, we were only able to administer five post-tests because people were getting released, and we said, just tell us. We'll come. We'll just come. We had a lot, a lot of logistical issues, and not everybody was happy about the program. You know, we had some COs, and that's why it's so important to have the right staff. We had some COs spreading rumors about the kids having sex with the dogs to other inmates. It was ridiculous. You know, and this, you know, it was horrible. It was really damaging. So we had to be really selective about who we, who we had in the program, and it, it really was a problem. Even simple participant profile data was hard to get. However, we do have some data, and we can see that violent, in, violent infractions among the inmates while in the program were reduced. And um, uh, nonviolent infractions, interestingly enough, increased a bit. Not a lot, but a bit. But when we have this data, we can say, oh, interesting, like, would you ever think that, like, you'd be more susceptible, the kids, to, like, having people instigate them and trying to get them out of the program? That's something we could program for, right? Like, this might happen to you. This is how you have to deal with it. You know, just prepare them a little bit, you know? So this, this is, you know, for our big N of 21, it doesn't mean so much, but our goal is to have more and more and more, okay? We adjusted for time and then per 1,000 days. Okay, so I'm probably almost done. I just want to say, um, you know, this is a, just an interpretation of the finding. We want to do more research, so we're looking for programs to help. Um, this is what we want to do. And I just put some resources on here for different humane education and the Mudagree's curriculum, um, and then it's my contact information. And I did it, right? 20 minutes. Okay, yay.
Next, we'll have Liz Keller present. Okay. Hi. I'm awesome to be here. It's a, a great opportunity to talk about the need for these type of programs. Important to talk about the need for these programs. My background is very program-oriented. Um, I've always been able to go into facilities and develop programs for the needs of the organization. I used to work with the New Hope facility upstate New York, which had residents that had Down syndrome, and we were able to do a dog training program, which encouraged them with their speech and their ability to work together. Um, we also started a 4-H program. It was the first shelter dog training program in New York State where youth trained shelter dogs as opposed to their own dogs. And it was amazing because in the beginning, when they had their own dogs, there was a lot of, they were self-conscious. Their parents were always yelling at them, you know, you're not doing it right. So there, it was a, it actually made the kid very nervous. And when we brought in the shelter dogs, the parents went off and talked amongst themselves. They didn't seem to really care what was going on with the dogs. And the kids loved it. So um, it, it's just an amazing bond. So in 2008, um, I wound up going to work for a sanctuary in Delaware County. And I was used to living in the city, working in Manhattan. I worked for animal care and control. So it was very hard for me to adjust. So I wound up going out into the community to look and see what we could do. And the Youth Leadership Academy um, was right down the road. And they, um, most of the children, the boys, it was a juvenile facility for young boys. They came from New York City. So when I went, my program, the idea to start a, a dog training program with them was very well received. And what you talked about was very apparent. There were parallels. Um, the boys were sent in a van from the city to upstate New York to be incarcerated. The dogs were sent in a van from New York City to the shelter. Um, they came from areas that the boys came from, the Bronx, Elmhurst, um, different environments. So the boys connected right away with these dogs, and um, I have a photo that I'll pass around and you can take a look at it. Um, what I love about this is this, we had a day where we brought a dog that was a bait dog, which means she was trained to, they trained other dogs on her to teach how to fight. And she was scarred up and petrified. She couldn't even walk. She would freeze at any noise, and she had a litter of puppies. And um, we brought the puppies and the mom to the group, and... Um, there was no control at that point. The boys each took a puppy, and they ran off into the grass, and they were, they were laying on the ground with these puppies on their chest. They looked like fathers with newborn babies. So um, we knew at that moment that this was an amazing program. So um, we've worked in Goshen Secure and a lot of different facilities, but Rikers Rovers, um, Rikers Island was one of the toughest facilities that I was asked to go into. Um, on the request of Jane Hoffman, I met with uh, Commissioner Saunders, a deputy commissioner at the time. They never had dogs on the, on the island. In fact, Roxy's one of ours in this picture. But my therapy dog, Tasha, was the first dog to go on the island and sort of break ground. Um, the officers were petrified, some of them, of pit bulls or pit mixes. So Tasha went in and sort of 
let everyone know that some pit bulls or pit mixes can be super friendly, and they are the great, great dogs to work with. So we started the Rikers Rovers. We worked with RNDC and GMDC, which were juvenile boys between 13 and 16, and um, they even hired a Department of Correction dog trainer to oversee the program, Danielle. And we were there for four years, and it was an amazing program. Um, it was not well received initially by some of the officers, and I, I was telling you, my niece and I grew up in Queens, and I'm glad we had a little tough background because we were abused by some of the officers, yelled at, um, cursed at when we went through the gate. How dare you try to help these people? They don't deserve help. So there was a really negative um, environment because we were trying to change a consciousness there. And it, it did, the dogs did it. Um, that was a very temporary um, feeling that we received. Once the program was up and running, we got hugs. Officers would um, want to see the dogs at the gate. We'd hold up the line because they wanted to look in the car and see who we had. So um, breaking barriers is really important with a program. Um, you have to be really tough and stick with the plan. Um, the other point I wanted to make, too, is programs are very subjective to who is in charge. So we had uh, Commissioner Ponte. He loved programs. Um, that's why we were there for four years. He wanted to have a shelter on the island that I was in the process of working with, um, his assistant commissioner on, and then he was um, he quit or resigned because there was some scandal about him using a, a car on the weekends that belonged to the city. So when he left, everything sort of fell apart little by little, um, and we wound up leaving because we weren't getting the support that we needed. And then the juveniles were actually taken off the island, so for me, it was interesting because when Rikers sort of fell apart, we went to Goshen Secure and reestablished a relationship we had there. And what was interesting is as the, ch the boys aged out of Rikers at 18, they get booted out, they go to Goshen Secure. So I met a lot of the guys that we had worked with at Rikers at Goshen. So, um, you know, it was a really a nice feeling, and the officers at Goshen Secure, are, they well, really love the program. In fact, we had to take a little break because of a local rescue that took over our lives for a while, and we received calls and emails that the boys want to know when we're coming back. Because, and it's one of the most um, well-received programs there. It's the top program, according to the residents. So, um, you know, again, like as um, you mentioned, these are situations where you have youth that are in need or inmates, residents in need of, of help, and you have many, many dogs in the city and upstate New York that have no homes. So to me... We have to do more to create these programs and make them more solid and make them part of the, the prison program. Um, I called a local jail up by me in St. Johnsburg, and right away they were like, oh, it's a good program, but, you know, we have to do this and we have to do that. Not interested. So I would love for the governor or someone in charge in the state to start mandating up that these programs have to be in place because they're, they're just amazing. Um, the other part is... Um, what I saw at Rikers when we had graduation, um, some of the articles that I sent, the Daily News did a great article on Rikers Rovers. If you Google Rikers Rovers and Liz Keller, it'll, it'll probably come up. And um, the boy, one boy got up and spoke, and it was really hard for them. So there were a lot of uh, benefits that the program achieved that were not even part of the, like we never even thought we were going to hit these milestones. And one was that different units could work together. Because of the gang affiliations and issues, they never, ever let two units be in the same room. 
the, the Rikers Rovers program allowed that to happen at graduation. Family came in, they were invited to see the, the uh, graduation where they performed all the different tricks and training things with the dogs. Um, and this young man got up and spoke, and he, he was 15 years old, and I'll never forget it. And he started off with, when I came to Rikers Island, I thought my life was over. And I had a hard time even listening to that, because I'm like, you're a young kid, like, how could you ever think that way? But he did. And he really um, could not talk enough about how this program empowered him. He learned how to train a dog, which thrilled him. He learned that he could work with people that he had issues with to get the job done. Um, they learned to get up at 5 a.m. in the morning to walk the dog. And um, as much as I heard from other people, like, oh, how could you send your dog to Rikers? I felt safer with my dog, with these group of young boys, than if I had sent them to a boarding kennel. Because I knew that these young men cared about these dogs. They never wanted to hurt them. I even had a hard time, like, we, even if you had to pull on the collar a little or the dog was pulling, I don't want to hurt them. And they were all, you know, treat rewards. They just were amazing. I could not believe it. So um, I know that that program is, you know, it's still in, in some, uh, I think Animal Farm Foundation has a program there with adults, but I'd love to see where the juveniles are, because again, they're out of the island, but in other facilities. It, it's really important for them because also, they're at an age where you can make a difference, you can uh, have a little more impact, everyone's able to change, but that age is really important to catch them um, before they wind up coming back into the system. Um, it's hard to work with juveniles because we're not allowed to photograph. Um, we could maybe do an audio, but any time you want to bring anything into the facility, we always had pushback. Um, we had somebody that wanted to do a documentary at Rikers and never got approved. So it's hard. We're, you know, we're not allowed to use their names. We get very little information when they leave because I think that's another key piece that's missing is some type of community outreach when they go home to help them um, volunteer at a local shelter, um, stay connected to a dog, whether it's through adoption or, you know, some type of work because they need it. Um, these programs are hands-on. <clears throat> and a lot of these young boys do not do well in school. They're not, not into reading. And I could tell, like, if I talk too long, I lose them. So usually we go in, I say, this is the longest you're going to hear me talk, and we're going to go to work. And once they touch the dogs and they start doing hands-on work, they're very, very smart. They retain information. So it's an amazing way for them to learn some really positive um, things and, and that they can accomplish something in their life. Um, emotions come to the top. So we always work with clinicians. Um, there was a horrible situation where one young boy was afraid to get attached to one of the dogs, and he always, like, stayed in the background, and we found out it was because his father killed every pet he ever owned, from a goldfish to a cat. And it was, it was um, substantiated, and then they wound up, you know, doing what they needed to do to make sure he wasn't put back in that situation. So the dogs really can bring a lot of emotional issues to the top very quickly, and the clinicians can take advantage of that. Um, we had a young boy. Um, we also had a really cool red bull and coonhound named Bo. And he wasn't a pit bull, but he loved the kids. And the kids eventually loved him because he wasn't like a real cool dog at first. But they all called him their brother by the time they left. And one young man got very bad news. He was hoping to go home. And his sentence was much harsher than they expected. And the clinician said to him, what can we, like, I can't change the fact but what can we do to make your day better? And he said, I want to see my dog. And they called us, and we brought him in, and he spent the whole afternoon with Bo. So um, 
you know, these kids are taken away from their homes. Um, yeah, they did something wrong and they need to pay, uh, they need to, you know, take care of that. But they also still need love in their life. Um, they're still really young. Um, it, it's just a sad situation. So I think that this type of program can really help them um, see that they can accomplish things. It, it teaches them to be tough. It teaches them to be strong. And it teaches them that they're needed. You know, these dogs need help. So um, I was very blessed to be able to work in all these different facilities. Um, the other part is the veterans come into play a little bit. We, one of the graduations, one of our dogs went to a veteran that had PTSD, and she came in full uniform to the graduation. And I could tell that the level of concern for the training was elevated with the boys when they knew it was going to a veteran. And we give them information about the veteran. So there's a little clip that just to show, like, don't ever underestimate the power of a program because you see it, but you don't always see the outcome. or you don't. So this one dog was trained just for basic obedience and some issues of going back and forth to get help by the boys in, in uh, Goshen Secure. And you'll see how this dog has impacted the life of a veteran by this little clip when, when we're ready to play it. Um, the way I was able to follow up with a lot of the boys was because Facebook exists. <laughs> and they all knew the name of the organization and they always called me Miss Liz and they would um, contact me. And I had a contact about six months ago from a young boy five who was in the YLA program and he remembered all the dogs' names. Five like that just blows my mind. He may not have remembered anything else and he's doing really well. So um, again, I would love to see Rikers um, or you know, whatever facilities are out there that have juveniles set something up on a more concrete um, sit, you know, basis rescue and have, have follow-up and see rescue what happens. Dogs, um, because I think we're missing the boat. I think this is probably one of the most effective ways to keep young kids out of jail. But we need to do more and we need to make it really available for them. I have a, fly, a couple of flyers if you wanted a little more information about the work that we've been doing. Um, and, I, you know, I appreciate being able to talk to you about it. Thank you. Dogs Rescue Soldiers. From a vision to want to have a place of light, this a is our place facility that can really make a difference in this world. Evie has affected Gavin and my life. Um, just by being that presence, a calming presence, ever since we've had her only two months so far that she's been staying with us. And it's been amazing because there's a sense of joy, a sense of Gavin having this new responsibility to take care of, and it's like they're taking care of each other. As a veteran, um, you struggle with a lot. Uh, you don't want to admit things, you have barriers, you close yourself off from the world, you um, you try to fight the battles by yourself because you're once someplace that had that connection, that strong family unit with you. But then when you're in the, world, the civilian world by yourself, it's a completely different world. And the opportunities to just become better, just know that you could get better from and deal with the things that you have, depression, anxiety, insomnia, 
um, night tremors, whatever it is, um, there's people out there. Liz, for example, is like the best, one of the greatest people. Per- <laughs> oh, wow. I can say so much about Liz, but she impacted my life by just bringing Evie in my, into my life. And if if there's a, a Liz out there, <laughs> go to her because she will they will do it. They will change your life. Having a service dog is not just having a pet around. It is adding that additional family that will bring joy in your life, that will make you not think that you're not worth anything. It will make you know that you're worth something. And, <laughs> and that's the most important thing. That's it. You can stop it. You can stop it there. So, again, you know, the boys never got to see that piece, but that dog's initial training and socialization that they did really helped her. Um, And she's given Gavin an amazing life. Um, He's like a different person since they've gotten a dog in their home. Thanks so much, Liz. Next we'll have... Next, we'll have Gloria Gilbert Stoga. Thank you. Our program, Puppies, I think. Thanks. Um, our program, Puppies and Bars, is, is different in that we do not use shelter animals. We use purebred Labrador Retrievers. Um, we breed them ourselves or we buy them from breeders. So I want everybody to know that up front. We work in prisons rather than jails because it takes two to three years to train one of our dogs. So we need inmates who are serving long sentences. And jails, as has already been explained, have a rapid turnover rate. It's kind of like a revolving door. You're going home or you're getting sent upstate. Um, We work in seven prisons, six in New York and one in New Jersey. And our dogs have two different career paths. They're either, they either become bomb-sniffing dogs for law enforcement um, or they become service dogs for first responders or wounded war veterans. We've been working for 22 years, and um, I've hired over the years 12 former inmates to work um, in our office, and, and Gilbert, who's going to, we're kind of probably work off each other and talk um, in tandem almost, um, is an example of someone who was in the program, as, as you heard from the bio, but he now also goes back into prison and he teaches. So it's not just that Poppy Van Bars, I think, changed his life because he was ready for change, but he's a role model. And anybody who has been in prison gets out, is successful, and goes back in can show the inmates that, yeah, and there's a another former puppy raiser here, um, that can show the inmates that through everything that's already been said, teamwork, hard work, you don't give up when the going gets tough, um, et cetera, et cetera, and you learn marketable skills, it really can help you land on your feet when, when you get out. 
Um, our program, it, like other programs, is very, very rigid. Um, it's totally voluntary. Uh, the inmates can quit anytime they want, and they can get kicked out anytime I want. Um, generally, half of them make it, and the other half don't. And the reasons that they don't make it are primarily boiled down to it's too much work, and they're not used to it. The other main obstacle, and it's more in the women's facilities rather than the men's, is they have a really hard time working together. It is astounding how difficult it is to work in tandem with other people. And that, if, if the inmates succeed in that, and I keep telling them, I really feel the Puppies Van Bars is preparing you for when you go home. Um, it has really nothing to do with dog training, though it does. But I really think it's preparing you for society and getting back on the street. Um, and a lot of inmates cannot work in a group setting. They cannot work with other people that, as has been said, they have issues with that they don't like. I mean, I... So that's, that's generally why people don't make it. It's not that they don't love the dogs. Everybody loves the dogs. Um, they don't love the other people in the program, and they don't love the amount of hard work. But, Gilbert, I'm going to stop for a second, and if you want to talk a little bit about, you know, it, not necessarily what got you to prison, but you can talk about that, but what, what drew you to Puppies Van Bars? What was it like in prison to be raising a dog and then, you know, maybe your trajectory once you got out? <clears throat> I thought, um, well, I was already in my 15th year and I was in Otisville. Um, and I remember I was probably making some coffee and suddenly I see a dog just fly by my, uh, my cube. And I, I was very curious. I mean, 15 years in a prison, kind of like just trying to stay above water and not drown myself in the prison. Um, I saw something that I was just piqued my interest. So here it comes that uh, Puppies Behind Bars is going to open up a program in the prison, and I wanted to be involved. Um, and the reason being I want, why I wanted to be involved is because, yes, I love dogs, but I also wanted to do something with my life instead of just, you know, mopping and sweeping or working out or playing sports in prison, which was going to do me no good when I get back out. So I decided to uh, look into this program. Um, so I think it was 10 of us that signed up, um, and I was able to get into the program, which I was very happy and I was grateful. Um, and I applied myself. I think, you know, uh, speaking of what everybody else was talking about, the issues in prison and stuff, um, you know, <clears throat> some, some are, are, can just be in prison and just be there and not do anything to help themselves. And then you have some that apply themselves in prison because they know that soon, they, one day they'll be out and they need to do something with themselves. They need a, a, a you know, they want education. Glenn goes and gets education. Um, people that apply themselves and whatever they do, try to do it the best way they can do it. Um, and so that was me. I figured in my life already 15 years in prison, I wanted to do something that was going to help me out in the outside world. So I applied myself, and I, Carl was the instructor in my facility. Um, so I just tried to pretty much mimic him, how he, how he worked with the dogs and how he did everything. I tried to be like him. I tried to do things the way he would do it. And, when, um, and I think I did a pretty good job. Um, so, and, and there are a lot of difficulties in the program in the prison system. 
um, and I guess you guys have touched on it a lot too, is like, you know, you could be in the program and other inmates that are maybe cannot be in the program, maybe because of the whatever their history or some things, uh, the facility says they cannot be in it or for whatever reason, they kind of, you know, make it a us against them type of thing in the prison. And while you are in the prison, uh, in the program, and like Gloria says, you're kind of like an ambassador of the program, so you're kind of like held to a higher standard. So you have to kind of do the things that you need to do and at the same time avoid or not get involved in the negative uh, vibe that other inmates that cannot be in the program or don't like dogs or whatever the case might be that try to get you involved in that because then, you know, if you, if you cannot uh, stand on your own, sometimes it's very easy for you to kind of like give up and then go with the majority of the prison and then say, I'm not going to be in the program or, or you know, you kind of do whatever it is and you get in trouble. So um, that was very difficult. We opened up the prison in 2006 in Otisville, and that was a big change for us that were in the program, but as well as for other people that were in the housing units that were not in the program. So what happens is that uh, the rule was we could take the dogs anywhere in the housing unit, but so when you, go, when you go to certain places, you have other inmates that don't want the dogs there. So you are in a predicament because as an inmate, you don't want to go to staff and say, hey, this guy is giving me problems. I can't take this dog to the laundry area or to the day room, okay? And, and, at the same, and so you can't tell them, so you can't get no help. But at the same time, you want to be able to go and move around with the dog. So it was, the dynamic was really difficult for the guys that stayed in the program, um, but we did manage to make it through. I guess the dogs did do some type of magic that were able to kind of soften other people's um, stance against the program. Maybe someone decided just to leave the housing unit altogether. Um, so then now we were able to move around, and the program was, um, ended up developing really nicely there. Let me just okay, interject sorry. for a second. Yeah, no, 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 we're going to do it together. Okay. But um, inmates who are in Puppies Jam Bars are moved to a dedicated housing unit. So they live together, and um, we hope that it's generally just the inmates in Puppies Jam Bars, but sometimes, as, as Gilbert explained, the housing units are bigger than our program is, so you have inmates in the program who are not in in puppies behind bars, and there is, you know, I mean, there's, um, but as the years have gone by, and there was a lot of opposition in the beginning, and huge amount of opposition, but as the years have gone by, I think that the program is, I mean, for 22 years, I think they realized we're not going anywhere, and, um, and I think also, as has already been said, the the dogs soften the whole prison population, and they make it easier to come to work for everybody. Um, and it's, we're accepted. I'm not going to say there aren't still problems. There are. You're working in a correctional facility. We work in maximum and medium security prisons. And security is always and should always be the first concern, and I, I, I get that. Um, so we're going into prisons asking for rules to be changed for inmates who have dogs, and I totally get that. You know, that, that raises eyebrows as well. But I think that um, the program is accepted. And when we switched in 2006, we initially raised Guide Dogs for the Blind, which is what Gilbert was raising initially. When we switched in 2006 to raising dogs for returning Iraq and Afghanistan war vets, I think it changed the perception of the program. Um, people, COs, prison staff, inmates couldn't necessarily relate to 
blind people, unless maybe they had somebody in their family that was blind. But a lot of COs are also in the military. A lot of staff have family in the military. So when we switched, I think that also gave us a little bit more credibility within that community. And Gilbert, what's it like to go back in prison now and teach? <laughs> well, um, now I feel comfortable. But uh, when I first went back, uh, it was a little, uh, a little weird, you know. Um, I just kind of like was trying to make sure I don't break no rules and do what I have to do. And, and, um, but yeah, it was just kind of weird. I don't really, can't really explain how it felt, but like from coming in from the outside now going in, you kind of was, I guess I'm wondering if how they seen me, I guess how they seen me now as I'm coming in as a civilian. But, uh, as the time went by, I, I, they treated me well. I mean, I feel like, um, all the way from the, the regular staff, the officers to, to the administration, always treating me with respect uh, when I come in. Um, so, yeah, I have no problem. I think it's good. I think now seeing the, the razors in there makes me feel good because one thing as uh, uh, being in the prison, you know, you do see volunteers that come in from the outside, and that was kind of motivating for me to see people coming from the outside that kind of showed they cared and they wanted to give their time. And I kind of said, like, I would love to do that. And here I am being able to do that. I feel like I'm just like a whole, you know, just seeing it from the other side. And I feel kind of proud to be going in there and, and teaching class. And, and you know, I kind of, and, and I, when I teach class, I like to have fun. So I like to have people, they laugh in the class. So, you know, when I, when I get that response, I feel like, you know, I'm doing well. And, and it motivates them to continue in the program. Um, I feel that it, uh, I don't want to stress anybody out. because I feel like when they stress, it's hard for them to learn. Um, so, you know, I say have fun with it. And I think they open up and, and we get to, and it works better for the dogs when you have fun, when you're genuinely having fun and you're not stressed because they feel that stuff from you going to the dog. So if you could get, be uh, light and lively, the dogs respond a lot to that. Thank you so much to Gloria and Gilbert. Uh, next, we'll move, and thanks to all the panelists for a really informative discussion. Um, next, we'll move to the Q&A portion, um, and you can feel free to ask questions to any panelists. I will repeat every question asked for the audio taping purposes. Yes. Um, I'll repeat the question and also make a comment on that. Uh, the title of the pro program's legal issues concerning animal programs in prisons. By legal issues, we didn't mean the legal issues faced by the organizations, but issues on a broader, broader criminal justice level and um, rehabilitation-based prison reform um, as being key legal issues. But um, I'd like to offer any panelists to go ahead and address that question. Thank you for asking. I could think of, and I'm not sure if it, if it is what you're looking for, but we did have to have discussions about liability if the dogs hurt someone. 
Um, I was told that they're sort of wards of the state, so there's not too much to worry about with the actual residents, but you do have people coming in. So the officers, um, we had a, a, an investigator come in from NYPD. Um, the dog's supposed to be on a leash, like they're supposed to follow a format. Um, the way we felt that it's handled best is to have the whole entire facility where the dog is under um, video surveillance so that you have a recorded um, tape to go to. And there was an issue once where um, the dog liked to go after like ankles sometimes, so with new people, and um, they didn't have the dog on the leash. But there was no bite, but the person made a big thing about it and uh, claimed all these things happened, but when they reviewed the, the tape, it did not. So it was dropped. So there's always, you know, someone could be looking to try to cause a problem to get monetary gain. Uh, dogs are always, you know, easy targets, and if the dog is has a behavior issue, um, you know, I think there's always going to be a lawsuit whether they feel they can or not. I think it's just always going to happen. I've seen many rescues closed down over, you know, legal cases where a dog bit someone. So that's, for me, that's my biggest concern is safety and that the program is run and monitored correctly so that my dogs cannot get put into situations where they're going to fail. Um, and, uh, you know, obviously we're very careful with the dogs that we place, but you never know. Sometimes something, you know, can trigger a different behavior once they're in a different environment. So um, that's the only thing I could think of, you know, from a, a legal issue on my end. Us, it might be different because our dogs enter prison when they're eight weeks of age. So they're vulnerable, young, not scary, and people in the prison see the dogs grow up. So they see them at different measures. They see them at eight weeks. They see them at nine weeks, ten weeks. They see them up to 36 weeks or three, 36 months, um, three years of age. So it may be different because there's a familiarity, you know, that you're watching whomever grow up. But we have $15 million in general liability insurance because, you know what, dogs are dogs. And we also have a very strong volunteer program. We have 300 volunteers who take our dogs out of prison to socialize them to the world at large um, because if the dogs did not get out of prison, they could not work in the world because the world would be too scary. So, you know, we've got people who are walking dogs out of prison and walking around town and taking the dogs into their houses. So we need to have general liability insurance in case there's an accident with one of our dogs. Again, I don't know if it's addressing that question exactly, but um, in terms of working with the shelter dogs, there's a lot of effort that goes into making sure they're a right fit for the program so that we avoid incidences like Liz is talking about. So in terms of, you know, bringing them around um, just the facility, how do they respond to the noises? How do they respond to jang jangling keys and cell blocks closing and all these different things, right? So, you know, there's a lot of that that goes into uh, selecting the dogs um, and also selecting the inmates. Um, you know, there are programs, there's one called Anacare that works with people who have histories of violence with animals, but this is not that program, at least the one we evaluated. So um, a lot of these inmates, you know, they were screened to make sure that they didn't have um, certainly animal cruelty backgrounds or any kind of 
you know, violence, uh, that was concerning. When we first started evaluating the program, Liz could probably speak to this a little too, the dogs, basically it was a team of five youth, and they had two um, lead youth and then three supports, right? So the two lead youth kind of like because of their records and because of their, uh, you know, who they were, they were selected for that. Just as a, an aside, I remember one of the, the mothers, uh, I was there when they called one of the mothers to tell her that her son was selected for the program, and she started hysterically crying. And they said, you know, what's happening for you? And she said, I, nobody's ever called me and said any, my son ever did anything good, right? So it was like this whole sort of like wide like family effect as well and the, at the graduations right. and stuff too. Um, but in terms of the legality, I mean, there's a lot of things to consider. First of all, um, you know, besides the fact that the dogs could, you know, those aren't predictable, right? But also, you know, they're exposed to a lot of things like medications, like things could be on the floor, they can eat things, right? When we first went into the program, what I started to say was they were housed, and those two lead inmates, they would sleep with the dogs in their cell, and that's when one of the COs started spreading rumors that the kids were having sex with the dogs, which we, of course, you know, we didn't think it was a good idea anyway to have the dogs in the cell. So then the dogs lived in the common room, and there was always somebody there watching the dog, and that's where the dog's crate was, and the toys, and everything, okay? So, you know, from a legality perspective, we want to reduce liability as much as possible in any way, shape, or form, um, including, you know, having people, like when we were talking about a lot of emotional issues come up, like with the trauma of things that happened in the past with animals. So you, we want to make sure that we're communicating with the mental health providers so that they know, you know, because you're really putting someone in a, they're already in a vulnerable position. You know, and then you're you're kind of like exposing them. So it's like you have to be careful because emotions are raw, and when you're in that kind of setting, you know, like anything can set you off. You know, prepare for a code. Like, That's right. Yeah, that was that was. Um, they had another issue where if the, a code broke out, something there was a fight or whatever. Um, pepper spray can be used. They have their um, special unit come in, and one of my dogs thought they were giant Kong toys and wanted to play with them all because they have these big black. Um, you know, uniforms and, and buffed like a, almost, I forgot what they call it, but it looks like a stuffed shield. Um, but at that point, there had to be protocols set in place, too, because if a dog is in the unit with people that he cares about and this huge team comes rushing in with bats and uh, shields and masks, um, you're going to have a possible poor reaction. So at that point, when a code was was set off, the dog was taken into what they call the bubble where the offices are. So there, there had to be a lot of safety protocols set up before the dogs actually lived in the units to avoid um, any type of, you know, legal problem or issue. the inmates and and they have um and yes we got a claim same thing as co that one of the inmates was having sex with the dog but you know that was literally in the first year that we started in a men's prison it hasn't happened again but you know i mean you're working in a tough environment so you're going to get this kind of crap and you know you, you deal with it and you get smarter as it goes on, but as you're accepted, at least in our case, um, it's it's very much different than it was in 1997 when we put the first dogs in prison. There was a case in the Midwest, you guys might know about this, where there was a dog who was living in an inmate's cell and the dog was found dead in the cell. 
Um, they don't really know what happened, but the dog had some kind of trauma. Um, you know, something like that. And, of course, obviously, you know, you're monitoring the program and it's different. But if these programs aren't run correctly, you're at risk for really damaging the reputation of them when things like that happen. So that's another reason, like, we need to make sure that we're really looking at best practices, right? Sometimes it's okay and sometimes it's not. And who's monitoring that? And you lose control of certain things. People want to take over. People have different egos. They want to be the ones responsible for this or that. And you're kind of in this situation where you're trying to stay in the, in the correctional facility and do your job or do what you're trying to do. And it can be hard. And I don't know if this directly addresses your legal issues, but Puppies Van Bars was fortunate in that before we started, we have an agreement with the state that Puppies Van Bars makes 100% of the decisions on the program. A CO may not touch the dog. A CO may not touch the lead of a dog. A CO may not tell the dog to sit or down or when to eat. We make 100% of the decisions because, as you just said, everybody, you know, so... It, it means it's really hands-on for us, <laughs> really hands-on, because we get every single call. And, um, but it's we're the ones who are totally responsible for the program, and the state and the employees of the state are not responsible at all. Um, and that's I think that's gone a long way towards us not having some of the problems that um, other prison programs have had. because I was asked so to just to just repeat the question will you just repeat the question so everyone can hear it and then I'll just yes. say something to thank it. you for that um, the question was the, was the program was called legal issues related to animal programs in prisons but did we focus on legal issues or administrative issues and um, Kim is going to respond to that yeah, I just wanted to talk a little bit when I was talking about intersectionality and social justice issues in the criminal justice system. You know, we have a lot of um, of, of, of obvious problems, right, that we know are occurring in the criminal justice system. And I hope that when I gave the presentation and I talked about that sort of the way, right, that social justice issues are connected, that this is such a great way to think of it and to think of how we can sort of think outside of the box in really pushing for equality and justice issues generally and educating inmates about that as well, but also everybody around in the program. I will tell you that the COs we worked with, they were the first to say in front of the kids, you know, when this started, we didn't think you were going to do it. We all thought you were going to fail. We were waiting for you to fail. But you know what? I am proud of you. You did an amazing job, and I am proud of you. And they can start seeing, right? Like, we teach them about, like, racial injustice and gender injustice and all these things because we want them to be informed critical thinkers when they, you know, re talk about reintegration, you know, we need to give them the tools to do that. So we are very focused on teaching social justice, not always to the, to the happiness of the organizations that we work with, but we think it's a really important component and we think it's very empowering for people. Um, so, you know, again... Human rights, animal protection, environmental stewardship, like we're all about teaching that. So I hope that answered that question a little bit. Okay.
Uh, I'm going to just repeat the question. Um, in any of these programs, do prisoners have the opportunity and the um, uh, when they're released to adopt animals that they help train? Because you said about the therapeutic aspect, and while it's totally true, and I know that there are programs where that's happened, and I'm sure that you guys can speak about that from your experience, um, and there is, it would be great if that was a possibility for all the programs. Um, but I also want to just say there's a lot of therapeutic value in, in not being able to adopt that dog and being able to say, you know what, I love that dog and I want that dog just to have the best possible home and maybe that's not with me right now, but it really teaches them, I mean, because it is emotional. I mean, one dog we had in there, he was in the yard and he had a cut on his paw and we had to take him back to the facility. Those boys were crying and these were like, you know. And, you know, so it was this whole kind of, that aspect of letting go, right, is a part of it. None of, none of the, the, the youth, they're all youth, so they're not going to be able to, at least in our program that we evaluated, they're not going to be able to take the dog home necessarily, but I am aware that it happens, and I just wanted to say that. There is therapeutic value in the, you know, being able to say goodbye. Well, I wanted to just let, answer her question. Yeah. Um, with our program... We do allow them to adopt. It's not always the dog that they are working with, because the, whoever the dog, the, the best place is for the dog to be in a home. So if when they're released, um, that dog is still available, we would. Um, we had a program where if they were a handler, we wouldn't charge them a fee, but we have we always do a home visit. And um, maybe in the four years, we've adopted three dogs to former handlers. And again, it goes to hand-in-hand hand with the juveniles in any event, that their home situation didn't really change while they were incarcerated. They still go home to the same issues. So it's not always the right setup for the dog. So, um, and that part is kind of sad. But they do, um, there were a couple, one boy actually um, came to work for us um, as a volunteer for the summer. He went to um, SUNY Delhi Community College, and he adopted a dog from us. And he also received an early release from jail um, from Rikers to come and work for us. So sometimes the dog program, um, a letter is provided, and it actually goes to the judge, and sometimes it actually helps with their sentencing. Um, and in his case, he was, I remember, I'll never forget it, he called me from Queens Boulevard outside the courthouse because he said, I'm never going to get an early release. And he needed just two months to go to college in September. He was going to get released in November, and we wrote a letter of support that he could come and work with us. And um, he said, "Oh my God, Miss Liz, the judge said yes." And he just and he's doing really well. He never he never went back in. He's uh, in the plumbers union right now. Lives in Long Island and still has his dog. Um. So with puppies behind bars, when you start in the program. Um, it's clearly conveyed to all the raisers. Yes, it's clearly conveyed to all the raisers that you have no ownership rights. The dog belongs to puppies behind bars and that your job is to train the dog and the dog will then go on to its career. Um, there are some times when the dogs are don't make the program and are placed for adoption, and that's a big process where people uh, submit applications and the applications are reviewed, you know, um, and we try to get the best match where the family, the potential family that's going to adopt a dog um, will be able to provide the best quality of life for the dog. And that's our goal when we put up a dog for adoption. 
And as has been said, I mean, we believe that being selfless is actually really good and doing something for somebody you don't know and you're never going to meet is, is therapeutic and, and teaches a lot. Before? Oh, okay. Go ahead, yes, please. before having the panelists answer um, do any of the programs track graduates um, that are dog trainers um, specifically regarding recidivism in is whether that's tracked um, and also is there an umbrella organization which would make tracking easier is if somebody re commits a crime in the state of Georgia or North Dakota or Florida or anywhere, it's not going to show up in New York State. So you wouldn't have pure data. Um, they'd have to stay in New York State to really know about recidivism. And for the service dog industry, there is an umbrella organization called Assistance Dogs International, but it is a which is great, and you have to become a member of it, and there's, there's strictures, but it's a totally unregulated industry. And it's a real problem. I mean, talk about legal issues. You know, just having anybody. I mean, I was just talking on Sunday to a firefighter who got one of our dogs. Anybody can buy a jacket online that says this is a service dog, and you can buy papers which say this is a service dog, and it costs about 25 bucks. And this firefighter who got one of our dogs and, and trained with us for 14 days, ran into this guy who said, I've got 11 service dogs. I bought all the certification online, and they fly with me all the time. So it's an unregulated industry, not just the prison or juvenile detention aspect, but just what is a service dog well, is. Can I just address that? Sure. You're more generous and optimistic than I. I think people want to fly free with their dogs, and they're going to always want to fly free with their dogs, and they're going to slap a jacket on and pretend they need that dog to get on that plane. I hope so. I hope you're right. That's a big problem. Comment on that?
do other panelists want to chime in on the question of um, whether they're aware of any tracking of graduates of the dog training programs um, and the impact um, or potential on the, in the area of recidivism? Well, I have always asked for it. I, I wish that they could. Um, but the reality is, like, the, I come from, you know, like animal care and control, there were 40,000 animals coming in. So Rikers was just overwhelming. Like, they never like, could ever keep up. Um, the movement of the inmates, um, which you touched on. So I don't know. I mean, there has to be a way to do it, but someone has to, number one, take on that um, task, and then they have to be in the system long enough, you know, and be a paid employee of DOC um, to start tracking. I think it's a key piece that's not, not there, and you really need it because it can help prove that what you're doing is working. Like I said, I just found out, you know, from people contacting me, on Facebook that they're doing well, but um, I could never get any answers, and we're not we're not given information on the inmates or residents. Wonder, I almost wonder how many of your people. It sounds like they have such good experiences. I almost wonder how many of them would voluntarily come back to be in touch with you. Is that a good question for you? How, how, how... Hey, I'm just. I just wanted to kind of generally address some of this in terms of a research question, because attrition is always a problem. It's always hard to keep up with people after they're done with any kind of program and research. So you usually have to have incentives and motivation, and sometimes you can have someone who really believes in it and they'll come back. But one of the reasons that we want to start collecting more empirical research is because the truth is even if we had recidivism rates and some were successful and some inmates weren't, we wouldn't know why because all the programs are really different. So when you're talking about like what are we measuring, you know, that's some of the things the, some of the things we need to address. And then it would be great if people can come together and we can have an association of people that are doing this kind of work, you know, to help. But I think the first step is just to have some empirical data so that we can kind of grow that, you know, and it's a long way. But um, you know, yeah, we want that information. We do, and as much as possible, be able to keep people in the loop so we can follow them and know what happens. But like any kind of long-term study, it's always challenging. And when you have zero dollars already, you know, we're starting with nothing. Maybe if we can get more funding, you know, we can actually start something like that. Yeah, I know you do. Yeah. Absolutely. I mean, that's what we're trying to show is that there's, you know, yes, recidivism matters, but nobody's going to get there if they don't have the social-emotional skills and everything else that they need to learn to be able to be successful and reintegrate. I do a lot of studies in, in reintegration, right? So it's like how do we successfully reintegrate people back in, you know, we have these large numbers of inmates, right? So it's definitely part of it, but we're starting from the very beginning in terms of just evaluation, you know? So... But that's obviously, yeah, that would be great. So we want, we want more money. <laughs> we want money to study this and to put these programs into place, but we have to start somewhere, and nobody has, you know, everybody's doing a lot of things voluntarily, quite frankly, you know. Um, Jane?
That's true, too, within part of humane education. Um, because I worked at animal care and control, I saw, uh, you know, horrific cases of dogs coming in from dog fighting raids, uh, whether it's from the ASPC or NYPD. So when we go into these programs, um, we know that a lot of these guys fought dogs just because it took place in their neighborhood or their father has, you know, six pit bulls in the basement. So we tell them that in no way is that acceptable. And one of these dogs, Alana, who was a former bait dog, really helped. But um, the boy that I mentioned earlier who, um, who wrote to the judge, he wrote a letter to me because we didn't know that. He was always a little bit, you know, a little hot in the class. He always wanted to take over in the beginning and wanted to show off. And I wound up having to talk to him with the counselor. And I said, you know, does that make you feel good to make other people feel bad, you know, like to show that you're better than them. And we had to knock him down a little bit and in a nice way. And um, we had a dog that came to us from the ASPCA named Honey. And she was a fighter, um, a good fighter. She didn't have any scars or anything. She was a tough dog. And they did not want to put her to sleep because she loved people. So we had to sign an order that we would take her to our sanctuary and make sure that she wasn't around other dogs. So, um, she was a good dog for me to teach these boys why dog fighting was so horrible. And I told them, if she's outside walking and I'm on the leash, and I just touch her tail, man, she'll spin and go, because she thinks any second of her life she could be attacked. She lives in that fear every day. And um, he just could see it. And he was very affected by Honey. And he wrote and said that he apologized for all the years that he thought dogs were just bred to fight and he said she has PTSD and I never even thought about that but she did and he vowed to change his life to make sure that no dog would ever suffer in his hands again and he did so that is a really key component when you have these programs you can utilize that time to educate the population about why dog fighting is wrong um, just to repeat the question before I, other panelists chime in, is um, the humane education aspect of these programs and education um, gen more specifically about dog fighting? One thing about that, I mean, I do a lot of research with anything that has to do with animals and helping animals. So I work with, um, and you might know, uh, Dennis Steele, who does dogfighting, cockfighting for uh, the ACES, for Animal Cruelty Investigation Squad. And we do a lot of work with gangs, and uh, generally, just in our research, we work with a lot of gang researchers. And you probably know this, or maybe not know this, but, uh, you know, that's recruitment, you know, is dogfighting, right? Like, that's the way, like, a lot of kids are brought into gangs. And, you know, they bring them to playgrounds, and they train them, and they get the, the kids interested, and it's like they, a fast way for them to make money. But most important, it's a way to desensitize them to violence. And that's the key, and that's why they do it. So, you know, with this kind of work, you have the opportunities, like Liz said, you know, to reverse that and change that and build empathy and compassion, and that's what we want, right? When all these people who are incarcerated, they're going to be released for the most part, right? So it's such a perfect way to address some of these systemic issues in these areas where dogfighting is rampant. It's an easy way to make money. Um, and let's not lie to ourselves. It's not just in, in, in low-income poor areas. This is, you know, dogfighting is, is really organized. And there's, you know, fancy places with people with lots of money that go and bet on them. And, you know, so it's like there's all these different levels and, and levels of awareness that you can teach about it. Freddie? Yeah. 
for the question, if it's okay. Um, uh, the question was very specifically regarding insurance, the insurance policy, and whether prisons are excluded. We work independent of the prison, so the $15 million is for our dogs in our program. So I don't know if that answered your question, but the Department of Corrections and Community Sur Supervision has, I have no idea how much insurance they have. It's got to be a lot. But we're totally independent of the prison, so we have a policy just for our dogs for our program. No, no, no. It's 24-7. Regardless of where the dogs are, there are dogs and they're covered if something were to happen. Um, are there steps to take legislative action um, and um, get the government to support more programs in this area? Um, I, I think that the answer here is that we none of us have testified. I don't know if that's true, but just not to be a naysayer, but personally, I don't want the government involved. I just think regulation, bureaucracy, level after level, the programs are so different. I don't even know how you come up with, you know, should the dogs sleep in the cells? Should the dogs not sleep in the cells? Should the dogs be shelter dogs? Should they be purebred dogs? Should the inmates be this and that? Should the inmates have a GED? Should the education not matter? We're so different. We're all doing really good work, and we're making sure that dogs and inmates are safe. And and But I, I think regulation... I, personally, I don't think it would be beneficial. I don't even know how you would construct what the animal of regulation, no pun intended, would look like. I wasn't talking about regulation necessarily, but I was talking about more being more receptive to it so that these programs could grow so they could be in all the jails and prisons and it could be incorporated and accepted and more government funding. funding. Is that over the years they've created an enhancement program in New York State, so some of the programs can be considered under that protocol or that umbrella, so that if an agency wants to go in and teach pottery or wants to provide pet therapy, um, there is some money for them during that time. But that all goes under an enhancement program, and you have to fill out paperwork every quarter. Um, they do track some of the, you know changes and things that go on with the residents. But it's, again, it's just a little, a tiny little thing. Maybe something could be built or expanded upon that. I personally feel, and I think it's because I'm coming from an animal rescue side and I worked in animal care and control, I think if it's a, a prison or a jail where the powers that be are open to it, there could be a much more formal program that should be there. Because to me, it's, you know, I don't know. We have a hard time finding help, and we had a program called the Doe Fund program, and um, that was a program that we put together, and it was the most successful program that the Doe Fund ever had. And basically what we did is they sent their 
uh, residents to us for three months at, East, at Animal Care and Control, and they worked with us for three months. If at the end of the three months we wanted to hire them, we could, and if not, they would be phased out of the job while they were looking for other employment. And most of our, one of our top handlers and, and ACOs came from that program. Almost all of them stayed. Um, they totally related to the dogs because they lived on the street. And like there's, there's a connection when the dogs and the animals mirror the lives of the inmates or the residents. It just, it just flourishes. So I personally would love to see a more formal program come from the state because Governor Cuomo is very involved. He's regulating rescues and he's doing everything to watch what's going on. So why not, you know, expand on a program that's really successful? I think it could be done, but again, it depends on the facility, the staff, and whatever organization they're going to partner with. But I think animal control, I mean, it's just a, throughout the state you have DCOs that are getting paid hardly anything. Um, there are a lot of issues with dogs running around in the streets. Um, we need to start doing something, spay-neuter programs. They could even, you know, possibly build a facility that would have abilities for people to learn veterinary care, vet techs. I mean, if we don't start giving these people that are incarcerated some kind of tool to take with them when they leave, I don't know how we're going to help them. And like I said, even we had, we had boys that went to work even when they left, and I had one kid call me, and he's like, now I have a job. I'm working at the shelter, but now everybody wants my money in my house. And he was upset because nobody else was working. So, you know, like we worked with him and we had a, a counselor because they did aftercare and helped him. But um, I, I just think we're, we're not supporting enough on either side. And to me, there has to be a way to make these two places come together for greater good. that a little bit too because when you think about um you know, first of all, a lot of the people who are doing these programs, particularly when it comes to shelter animals, they are so overburdened. They don't already, they're like, these are just like, I mean, first of all, fighting your way to get into facilities to do them. So there's not always cooperation there. And then just dealing with the day to day, like the work and the expense, but you also have a lot of other rescue things going on. So, you know, I think that it requires some activism and it requires, um, that's one of the reasons we wanted to do the evaluation to just provide information for people so that they recognize the importance of these programs. And also, when you're thinking about it, we're talking about inmates and we're talking about animals. And let's face it, you know, in, in our society, the status of inmates and animals, people look at it. I mean, look at the COs that we were dealing with who said, well, why are you helping them? You know, I mean, they would be aggressive to some of my students who were going in to collect data, my graduate students, right? So it was sort of like, this feeling of non-deserving. But I think we need to look beyond that and we need to say, okay, we have these big problems and how can we solve them? And we definitely need help. So if there's, that's one of the reasons I was excited about coming here to talk. If there are attorneys and people who have ties with policymakers, you know, and ways to change the policy, we need a lot of people to do that. So if anybody, you know, here wants to, I would love to talk to you, and I'm sure everybody up here would too. So hopefully this will, you know, talking about it like this will help. Jen, Freddie, other questions? I have a question. Okay, the question was, um, are there um, cat-based um, programs in prisons um, or other types of animals? 
There are. Maybe one of the most famous was the beginnings of the Birdman of Alcatraz, right? Um, sometimes there are feral cat colonies. In fact, there was one on Rikers, and they destroyed all the cats on Rikers, and the inmates were taking care of them. Um, so, you know, in terms of formal programs, yes. Uh, there's, uh, I can get you the information on them. I, I know that there's a rescue... Um, a local rescue that's actually looking for a facility to work with with their cats, a correctional facility. Um, and there is one that's existing, and I can get that information and send it to you if you want to share it with everyone. When we were at Rikers, the deputy commissioner had, the assistant deputy commissioner wanted to start a program with the pregnant inmates and have them nurse kittens. A lot of people in the animal welfare world were like, that's a terrible idea. You shouldn't do that. But... I think it's a great idea because if it's monitored, you know, and, and they're learning to be on a schedule with kittens. I mean, look at these kittens when we have kitten season and, they you know, all the bottle care and the hand feeding that you need. And the inmates can learn how to do that and prepare for their own, you know, human infant. So, yes, and there's a lot of different animals that we could work with with animal-assisted interventions. My thing is always, is it right for the animal? right? And cats, you know, it's not going to be right for every cat. It's not right for every dog. But if we do the evaluation and it makes sense, then I'm all for it. And yeah. Uh, do any other panelists want to comment on that um, question? Dana? Question. Um, she, uh, the question was um, for programs that provide service animals to um, veterans, how is the connection made um, and um, how is the pairing made? Um, yeah, the VA recommends. Um, it's also word of mouth. It's um, Some of our veterans are in group therapy and they walk in with a well-behaved service dog and another vet goes where'd you get your dog um you know yeah it's it's health care providers either private or through the va and who they'll generally give a list we are a member of assistance dogs international so the va will say okay you want a dog from assistance dogs international here's the list but if they have a patient that has a puppies and bars dog they may well recommend puppies and bars. Some um, organizations charge for their dogs. We don't, so that's certainly a consideration. Is you know some veterans will only research organizations that provide the dogs without charge. I mean there are a lot of different. So we retain ownership of the dogs for life. Some organizations don't. So if the veteran wants to own his or her dog outright, they're not going to come to puppies behind bars. Yeah, we have a long application process. It's it's online. They have to they have to in essence get a prescription from a healthcare provider that they need a dog and that they um, can take care of and provide for a dog. And then we do all sorts of references, et cetera. Process it comes from the VA hospital referrals, and then their doctor will provide a letter um, stating why they need the dog. Um, and then we also, we don't charge our veterans for the dogs. And then we did a lot of research before we started, and we also found out that some of the other um, organizations don't provide or help with veterinary care. 
um, and we had a very sad, we heard a very sad story from a, vet, a veteran that was affiliated at the Bronx VA. So we provide, if they can't afford something and something comes up that's pretty um, severe, um, we will help out with um, veterinary care if, um, if they request it. So that way they're not losing a dog that's really part of their family because it was a, a veteran that had a dog from a different agency and the dog got sick and it was over $2,000 and the agency wouldn't, was not able to help him, but the dog died that night. So here he lost, he felt, he felt so responsible for not being, so it just created a whole nother mess for the veteran. And he was introduced to us and he started working with one of our dogs just to help him get through it. But, um, you know, most, all of our dogs, um, veterans, they come from referrals from a VA and then the doctor's notes or letters. whether graduates of the program um, have what type of employment opportunities they have and if there are partnerships with community reintegration organizations. We had a program in place um, with the Youth Leadership Academy when the residents left. They were followed for like three months of support and they received like a stipend from the state. Um, so we were able to, um, they put us in touch with their community person, whoever it was from whatever organization, and then we would help them actually with the help of the Mayor's Alliance for New York City Animals at the time find a facility near their home. So we placed a couple of residents in working positions at Sean Casey's facility in Brooklyn. Um, we also were working with the Children's Aid Society, but then the government, New York State cut a lot of funding for them, so those things stopped dead in their tracks because they weren't allowed to give stipends and they just lost the ability to help a lot of the youth when they left the facilities. <coughs> but we would love to do that again if we could. of our former inmates have gotten employment either in the animal field or not um, it, and we don't have partnerships with any reentry no a thing that needs to happen <laughs> right we need to create those partnerships and that's going to make people more successful but this is the you know this is these are things we need to to do what breeds of dogs are suitable for these types of programs and um, I guess we featured two different models this evening we have um, a program that provides um, service and emotional support dogs that are rescues as well as um, purebred Labradors so I'll let the, um, to the panelists answer on that shelter base so we're going to use dogs that we receive from the shelter environment um, most of our dogs come from New York City animal care and control but again it has to be a dog that's social um, you know has to have really very 
limited behavior issues. If they're minor, we can work with them and correct them. Um, they need high energy. They need to be able, depending on what, you know, if it's a dog that's going to go for a veteran that has PTSD, they have to be super social and understand the commands and work really well in groups and around other animals. So the dog aggression, they can't have any signs of aggression. Um, so again, it depends on the dog. Even if a dog is in the program, they could maybe not work out because something might come up in the middle of the program where, um, you know, something we didn't notice or something that started to show. So working with shelter dogs is a little more difficult because we don't have a lot of history on them. But the dogs that we place, we know are pretty much like bomb-proof. They've gone through a lot of training, and um, we have to be super careful when we place them. So um, just for us, it's just the way I like. I love pits. Um, I understand they can be problematic. Um, there's a lot of stereotypes. Um, but a lot of the veterans love them, too, and they provide a lot of support and love if it's a really good dog. Um, and that's really what we focus on, not so much the breed but the dogs that come in, we sort of have to cherry pick, you know, the really good ones to do this type of work. I second that. We use labs, but, A, I love pit bulls. Oh, my God, are they nice and gorgeous and intelligent and sweet dogs. But even within, you know, the purebred lab world, you have to cherry pick. You know, not every dog can do this kind of work regardless of the breed. So it's, it all comes down to the individual dog. I'll just add quickly. I mean, I, of course, agree with that, right? It's not about breed. It's about the, the dog's personality and what the dog can handle. And, again, you know, the training process for picking, you know, the dog, you know, the noises and what can they tolerate and how they respond to that. I also love pits because I think that it breaks a lot of stereotypes. There's a lot of breedism around pits. And, you know, that's a way to sort of, like, teach people about, you know, pit bulls. And, you know, it's sort of like you know, how can you generalize, right? Like, a, like, oh, all pit bulls are the same. Well, that's what people do with humans, too, and that's why a lot of humans are incarcerated. So, you know, that's something that we like to kind of break stereotypes and barriers around that, for sure. Um, and I had one other point to make, but I know that it's getting late, and I need a... Okay, all right. So I just wanted to say, you know, I, I, ha I work with my dog, um, Ella. I have three rescues, and she's a three-legged dachshund mix. I mean, she's so goofy. She's the goofiest dog in the world. And she's adorable and she's really sweet. My other dogs, I don't work with them because they don't like it. Um, but I still know that they have a lot to teach. So sometimes even if you have a dog that's a little timid, you know, you have inmates that are a little timid too, and maybe they need a little time to warm up. And, you know, it's good for them to see different types of personalities. So I think as long as the safety issues are in check, you know, that it's actually valuable to have dogs with different personalities because just like we have different personalities, so do they. So it's kind of a nice thing to, you know, it's not all one size fits all. There's a lot of different dogs that could be great fits for these programs. Not yet. Go ahead. I mean, uh, the question is, are there age limits for the dogs? I think there's a, uh, I'll let the panelists answer, but one quick comment. I think there's a variety of different types of programs that use um, all sorts of animals. More serious training, if it's a service type dog, we like to work with them when they're about a year and a half, um, but we start working with them if they come in and they're younger, um, just socializing, and we have different programs. So like for pet therapy, we could use a dog that's younger 
um, just to keep them social and take them different places, getting them used to all the noise and chaos. Um, and then when we get into more of the formal training, they're usually about a year, a year and a half, because it takes a long time. I mean, we don't, it takes a long time to train a dog, so, you know, we don't want the dog to be 10 years old by the time we're done. So we try to start when they're mentally able to handle the, the, the enormous amount of work that they're expected to do. In eight weeks, so they're teeny tiny puppies. I would love to see some senior dog programs in prisons because they are, you know, it's so tragic. They get dumped in shelters and they have no chance. And, you know, just being there could, like, enhance their story to make somebody notice them. So I would love that. How are the animals um, in the training programs retired um, or adopted? I know. No, well, I, <clears throat> well, I'm not. You know, I don't. I don't participate much in the dog tags uh, program because there's a lot of uh, confidential information and stuff. But I know that um, usually around in the ninth, ninth year, nine, tenth year, usually the dogs slow down a bit and um, they will then be retired. Usually, the the handler, the veteran that would have them. We see that there's a change. Maybe the dog is not, you know, working as it used to. Um, so it'd be time to retire the dog, and it becomes his pet. Yeah, if they keep a dog, if they can keep a dog, yeah, then they keep it, and they can get what's called a successor dog. Um, so they will have two dogs in the house. If they can't keep the first dog, then Puppies Van Bars takes it back, and we find a home for it. For Gloria, if your the format of your program could easily be reciprocated in other states. calls a week from other states because we were one of the first now as as you said they're all over the country so nobody's asking um to be perfectly honest i don't know that it's replicable our program is really hands-on it's really tough there's quizzes and homework and reading assignments we can kick the inmates out as i said because it's voluntary um Puppies Van Bars makes all the decisions, and there are probably prison prisons that want the corrections officers to make the decisions or at least be involved. So we were lucky with the governor of New York State, who at that time was George Pataki, when we started. And I don't know how... So I don't... I, I, my answer, my short answer, to be honest, is no. It probably wouldn't work in every state um, because we're more independent than I think some states would want.
ask, say that question. Does anyone have any additional input on the first part of the, the first question? No, okay. Um, then this was um, whether any of the um, puppy raisers um, stay in touch. Actually, I think it was the other question. Oh, okay. Yes. Whether the recipients uh -huh. stay in touch with the puppy raisers. Using a dog. Speaking of staying in touch. Hey, PK. Um, he's making his rounds. Yes. Um, we encourage it. Uh, letters can come through our office. Um, pictures, but you can't be in the picture. But a lot of times the veterans and first responders come back to prison to thank the inmates and tell them how well they're doing and how the dog has changed their lives. And we also will take dogs in, like we have a firefighter who just got married and he's going on honeymoon to South Africa. And so we're taking his dog in for three weeks. So he dropped the dog off in prison, said, you know, to the inmates, thank you so much. I just got married. He's going to pick the dog up. Um, so we do that. We foster and encourage, but the recipient has to be the one who's comfortable with that. Um, well, I think we're going to wrap things up. I want to thank the panelists so much for an extremely informative and interesting discussion. Thank you. Um, the comment was, um, it would be great to find out about more ways, volunteer opportunities to get involved in these types of programs. And also that the panelists can submit to me um, any information or resources on their organization. Both of these nonprofits do outstanding work, so I strongly recommend looking into both of them. Um, Puppies Behind Bars and Rescue Dogs, Rescue Soldiers. Okay, thank you so much, everybody, and thank you for attending this event.